All right, guys, we are in our sixth week in the book of Galatians, and we've been looking at this topic of freedom over and over again and from all sorts of different angles. And what's true is that every human being has this longing deep in their heart to be truly free. And I remember first sort of recognizing and expressing this longing when I was in fifth grade. I was in this fight with my parents, and I saw no other route than to run away from home, except I wasn't a very good planner. And so we were in the middle of a fight, and I just remember without grabbing any food or without grabbing any extra clothes or without really thinking about it, just bolting out the front door. And I didn't get very far, maybe a few hundred yards and standing in the street. And I remember just thinking, I didn't plan it out beyond this. And uh, what I thought would be freedom doesn't feel much like freedom right now. And all these questions began to to, you know, bat around in my mind, and I decided right then and there that I needed my parents, and so I kind of bowed my head and walked back in the house, and I don't know if I apologized or not, but, but that was my attempt, right, to exercise my freedom, and all of us are sort of on this spectrum, right? We've looked for freedom in, in various ways. Maybe it's through trying to keep the rules. Maybe it's by seeking uh, pleasure in just finding life in, in whatever. Um, but what, what's true is that true freedom is not found in those things. And I don't know where you're at on the journey, but I wanna invite you to see the picture that the Bible gives us, which is that true freedom is found in God himself. Just like I, as a kid, needed my parents' protection and care and oversight and money and food. We need God's protective care in our lives to experience the true freedom of being his children. And so we're gonna look at this morning three ways that true freedom is found. And the first one is we're gonna look at the freedom in being known. Freedom in being known. So again, we're looking at verses eight through 11 to start. It said, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid I may have labored over you in vain." So as I've studied through Galatians, one of the resources that I've used is a pretty famous commentary by a guy named Martin Luther on the book of Galatians. And Martin Luther helped to kick off the Protestant Reformation. And so he really helped the church to clarify again what the gospel is. And in his comment on this section, he said this, it is one and the same thing whether a person reverts to the law or to the worship of idols. Okay, so here's what Luther's saying. What Paul is actually explaining here is that if you trace idolatry, so in other words, pagan idolatry. So Paul is reminding the Galatians that they used to be enslaved to those who were not God. So he's thinking of Zeus. He's thinking of 
the goddess of fertility. He's thinking of the god of the moon. He's thinking of the god of the stars. You are enslaved to these pagan non-gods. And essentially, the way that you serve the pagan non-gods is by just doing whatever you want and experiencing all of the pleasure that the world had to offer. And Paul is actually saying, and Luther recognizes this, and then Drew recognizes it through Luther, that what, what this passage is actually teaching us is that to run away from pagan idolatry, from pleasure to religion, is actually to do at its root the same thing. That's what Paul's saying here. So toward the end of the passage, sort of middle of verse nine, Paul says, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world? So this is the really interesting thing. The Galatians were actually turning from pagan idolatry worship to Judaism, okay? So they were going from a completely almost secular worldview to a rich religious heritage. And what Paul says is, you might as well be going back to your pagan roots because the heart of the matter is the exact same. How could that be? And what Paul says is the root of both pagan idolatry and religion is godlessness. So he says the solution to both problems is actually to know God. And then he even clarifies that, to be known by God. It's to be reconciled into relationship with God. Because the reason that you run to pleasure is actually the same reason that other people run to religion. It's to establish an identity and actually to find freedom apart from God. So Paul's saying, if you want your heart to be at rest, that rest will only be found in the freedom of being known by God, of coming before him with who you actually are, to stop trying to earn his favor and actually to stop running away from him to pleasure, and actually just to come before him and to say to him, with all honesty, this is who I am. And what you'll find is that when you say, this is who I am to God, he will say, I know. I know exactly who you are. You can't hide anything from God. And he'll say, I know who you are, and you know what? I love you. I love you just as you are. And that is what we are looking for. That is what we're craving. That's the reason we run to religion. That's the reason we run to pleasure is we're actually looking for people to approve of us, to care for us, and to tell us that we're okay. And so both idolatry and religion make God into a killjoy. That's the problem. They turn him into a harsh judge. They turn him into a person that no one wants anything to do with. And the Bible gives us a very different picture. And Jesus actually gives us the perfect illustration of this reality in Luke chapter 11. He tells a story about two sons. You might know it as the story of the prodigal son. But if you remember that story, there's these two sons and their dad is super 
wealthy. And one of the sons represents sort of this pleasure-seeking guy. And he goes to his dad, he says, just give me the money. And he goes and spends it on prostitutes and he goes and spends it on drink and he goes and spends it on food and he goes and spends it on wild living until he is completely destitute and out of money. And meanwhile, his brother is at home and he represents the religious guy and he's keeping all of the rules, but he's keeping all of the rules in order to be good. He also doesn't want anything to do with his dad. And we have this beautiful scene at the end of the story when the prodigal comes home and his dad, you know, in the ancient times they wore like dresses and so he's like lifting up his dress. He's running. In ancient times, old men never ran. And he's running and his son is like, got his head down, he's in shame. Like maybe I could just be a slave. And the father just throws his arms around him and says, welcome home. And he kills the fattened calf and he throws a party for him. And the older brother stands on the outside And he doesn't want anything to do with the party. In fact, he's mad. It's offensive to him that his father is generous. And that's the problem in the heart. Both of an idolatrous person and a religious person is that the generosity and the goodness and the joyfulness and the father-heartedness of God becomes an offense to them. And so my question is, which of the two ditches do you tend to run into? Because even as believers, we have a tendency to run to one of these two ditches. Are you tending to run to pleasure? I'm gonna do whatever I want. Life is found in doing what I want when I want to do it. Or are you the type of person who says, life is found in keeping the rules? Chances are, if you're an oldest, you're a rule keeper. If you're a middle or a youngest, woohoo! I'm going to do what I want, right? But the solution for both of you is the same. That's what Paul says. It's to come home where true freedom is found. It's to come to the embrace of your heavenly father. And when you do, you will experience an even greater freedom in being shaped to be like which gets us to the second freedom, which is freedom in being formed, being changed into the image of Jesus. Let's pick up the the text in verse 16. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you may make much of them. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose, And not only when I am present with you, my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. So here, Paul is contrasting the way that religious people would have you change and the way that true Christianity produces change in your life. And so he's talking about these religious teachers. And he says, I want you to notice something about the pattern of the change that they try to bring about in your life. And it's sort of this three-step process. And Paul's aim is to unmask it so that the Galatians, and so that we would be able to see through it, see through the hypocrisy. The first step 
is they make much of you. This is what religious people do. If you go to their churches or hang out with them, they will make you feel great about yourself. We don't talk about sin. We don't talk about brokenness. We don't talk about problems. They want to build you up and convince you that you are a good person. Some of you have come to Salt City long enough to know that we talk about sin, and you think that that's a problem with our church, and we think it's a great thing about our church. Because if we weren't talking about sin and weren't making you feel bad, we wouldn't actually be preaching the truth of the gospel. We would be a religious institution, not the church of Jesus Christ. And so religious people will make you feel good about yourself. They'll flatter you. They'll tell you you're good, and you'll leave their presence feeling like, I'm a pretty good person. You know what? I'm not as bad as as the next person. But here's why they do that. Paul gets into this a little bit, and it's not pretty. He says, they make much of you that you would make much of them. In other words, they tell you that you're good so that you would tell them that they're good. In fact, that you would recognize that they are like wise sages who have this whole morality thing figured out. So what it actually begins to produce is this sort of two-stage Christianity where you have the, the religious elites, the people who are really good at keeping the rules and who are telling everyone else, good job, you're doing great. And then you have those people looking at the religious sages and they're saying, wow, you guys are really awesome. I'm glad you're my pastor, my reverend, my priest. I'm glad that you're in that position because wow, you are really a holy person and I really look up to you a lot. But it gets even more sinister than that. Paul says actually the motive in this whole thing is to create this spiritually elite class. It's in order to shut you out. You see, the reason that religion is so appealing to people is because people, whether it's middle schoolers or priests, they want to be part of the in crowd. And so if I follow the rules, I'm part of the in crowd. I'm in. People look up to me. People respect me. People admire, admire me. But in order to be part of the in crowd, what do you have to do? You got to make fun of that person's shoes or you got to tell them that they're not that good at keeping the rules. And so the whole reason for this is they want to shut you out. Two-stage spirituality. The people who are really good at keeping the rules and everybody else, and it locks people who are on the outside in slavery. Because when you're out, you want to be in. And so you get on the treadmill, and you just keep going and going and going and going. And this is a multi-billion dollar worldwide enterprise. And it is the background that many of you have. It would be a miracle if you grew up in a mainline Lutheran or Methodist or Catholic church, and this was not the spirit of the group that you were a part of. It's possible, but it is highly unlikely because what's preached in those churches across America is not the gospel. It's another religion entirely. It's something else. And if you have accepted that teaching, you have not come to know Jesus, you have come to worship Satan himself. 
Because God is a generous God. He is not a shut you out, keep you in your place, you better earn my favor, God. And so Paul contrasts that with the truth. See how different what Paul was doing was. He didn't flatter people. He says in verse 16, have I become your enemy by telling you the truth? See, what Paul did is he wrote this very letter to expose the sinfulness of our hearts, to show us, all of us, that we have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, that we are not good people by nature who have the possibility of becoming better on our own, but that we are actually deeply flawed, morally corrupt, rebels against God, trying to find our freedom in everything except for God himself. Now, why would you do that? Why would you tell people that they're bad? Why would you tell people the truth? And Paul says that his goal is not that people would make much of him, but that Christ would be formed in them. In other words, the goal of this church and every gospel preaching church is that we want you to become like Jesus. Not conform to me or any other leader in this church, but formed into the image of Christ. And when we begin to teach those things, what it does is it gives us a standard to seek, to aim for, but it also leaves us spiritually destitute, needy, in need of God's grace every single step of the way. Because the goal of a true Christian leader is not to shut you out. Paul says it's actually to be present with them. You see, he's longing. He's like, I just, I want to be with you guys as your brother in Christ. I want to link arms with you and help you fight the heresy that's happening in your church because I am not somebody above you that I want you to look up to. I am you. I'm with you in this struggle. In fact, this reality and this spirit is what characterizes true gospel ministry. You want to recognize a true church, a church of Jesus, you will find in that place authentic people. Listen to what Paul says to another pastor, Timothy, about himself. He said, here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. See, that's what true Christianity is all about. It's when we get to a place where we look at the example of Jesus, we look at the moral law, and we say, I'm the worst. And here's what we find in that freedom. Isn't that great? This is a place where you're gonna show up and be like, I am the worst. And we look at each other and we're like, me too. How can you be the worst if I'm the worst? I'm the worst. But Paul lays claim on it, it's scripture. So he was the worst, so we can be like second worst at best, right? But there's a freedom in this, in this authenticity 
where we're just able to come clean and we're able to say, you know what? I'm not good at Christianity. I'm not good at keeping the rules. I haven't found freedom there. And we begin to take off the mask. And in so doing, we find ourselves actually taking the first step in having humility, a characteristic that is foundational to being formed into the image of Jesus. So it's counterintuitive. It's not by trying really hard that you become formed into the image of Jesus. It's actually by admitting that you can't do it on your own, that you see him beginning to be formed in your life. I saw a great example of this. This last week, we were at a network gathering. We're part of a network of churches called the Salt Network. So there are 13 churches represented at this network gathering. And as part of it, there were two old timers who were sitting up on the stage, one of them in his early 80s, the other one in his 70s. And the topic of conversation was, how have you both walked with Jesus for a lifetime? There were tons of, of memorable quotes, and both of them talked about how the Bible had shaped them to be the men that they were, that they both had a practice of spending time in, in God's word every single day, that they both had found mentors. In other words, there's lots of effort that they've been putting in to following Jesus over the course of their life. And they made this statement that they were both one day away from walking away from Jesus. They had this, this awareness of their own sinfulness. And this kind of came to a head when Tom, one of the guys sitting on the stage, said, you know something that's really surprised me? He said, my struggle with lust has really picked up since I turned 80. And there's sort of this like deflated feeling in the room and kind of like, this is awkward, right? But, here, but here's the reality. That's true Christianity. You see, Tom got a mic and he didn't want to tell everybody, now look, you whippersnappers, let me tell you how to do this thing following Jesus. He wanted to tell us about his sin. Because when we tell each other about our sin, it magnifies the Savior and we all have the opportunity to be formed into the image of Jesus. Do you want to be formed into his image? Do you want to know him? It starts with this confession. And you have to have somebody to confess it to. And that's not going to happen in rows at church. So you got to get vitally involved in this community. And then here's what I'm, I'm like spiritually daring you to do. Just share your sin. But I go, didn't you love in the video what Thomas was describing? Like, I'm going to give up one fake ID, but not both of them. You need like a group to give up both fake IDs, right? That's like a big deal. I don't need a fake ID. I'm 35, um, by the way. <laughs> but, uh, okay, we got to ask an even more foundational question to get, to get to freedom. Because here's the reality. None of us will walk into freedom on our own initiative, we are, are just too married to our corruption or our religion. It, it's, it's impossible. And, and so Paul actually recognized that fact. The Bible actually that, recognizes that fact. And there's a more foundational freedom. It's the freedom in being alive. We're born dead sinners. We need to be made alive. And so we're going to talk about that a little bit here to, to close. Okay, verses 28 through 31. 
Now you brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, so also it is now. But what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. Okay, so this is part of an extended section. You can get a little bit confusing, so I want to bring it down to the bottom shelf for you, okay? You've got these characters in the Old Testament. You've got Isaac and Ishmael. Isaac was the child of the promise. We've been talking about this as we've gone through Galatians, that God showed up to Abraham and he told him that he was gonna have a son, a son by his barren wife named Sarah. And the Bible says that Abraham believed God, dot, 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 kind of, okay? Because at one point, he stops believing God when Sarah comes to him and says, hey, look, I'm never gonna have a kid. I want you to commit adultery with one of our slaves named Hagar. She's much younger than I am. She could obviously have a child. Maybe that's actually how God wanted to give you the promise, even though he told you that I was gonna be the one having the child. So Abraham's like, that's a good idea. And so Abraham commits adultery with Hagar, and sure enough, she has a kid. But here's the problem. His name's Ishmael, and he's not the child of the promise. Ishmael doesn't fulfill the promise. Much later, after a long period of waiting, Isaac is born, and he fulfills the promise. Well, here's the contrast that you've got to see, is that Ishmael came about purely by natural means. It was Abraham and Sarah's idea. Abraham had sex with Hagar, and she had a child. Purely natural. That's how people have babies. I don't know if you knew that. Okay? Isaac was different because Abraham and his wife were almost 100 years old. And so it was impossible for them to have kids. And so God showed up to them and said, through the natural process, as well as a supernatural intervention, you will have a child. So here's what Abraham and Sarah did. They continued to regularly have sex and they waited a really long time and God took the natural process and he inserted a supernatural process and brought about a child of promise. So Isaac is a child of promise because it was brought about ultimately by the supernatural work of God. And so here's what Paul wants us to see. If you want to be a child of God, the same thing must happen. There needs to be a natural process where you come to church, you read the Bible, you start to understand the gospel, but there also needs to be a miracle that is God's idea, where he supernaturally comes in into your life and he takes out this hard heart made of stone and he gives you a heart that is alive, that beats for him, that loves him, that is all in for him. 
Okay, here's, here's the difference. Let me illustrate this for you. Imagine that you really want an oak tree in your backyard. And so you decide to go to Menards and buy a bunch of oak. And you build an oak tree in your backyard. Now that's a very efficient way to accomplish the task. But you don't have an oak tree. You have a fake tree. It's not real. It's not alive. It, it might be made of oak and it might vaguely look like a tree, but that's not an oak tree. It's not going to last very long. It doesn't have any roots. A strong wind's going to come. It's going to tip it over. Here's how you get an oak tree to grow in your backyard. A big oak tree that gives you lots of shade. You're probably not going to enjoy it. Your kids will. You're going to plant an acorn in the backyard and you're going to wait 100 years. See, that's what receiving the gospel is like. And it's why it's so hard for us to give up our works because it's so much more efficient to look alive than to actually be alive. So here's what I'm asking you to do. Receive the promise. Let God plant this seed of his spirit and of faith in your heart. And you're asking the question, okay, faith in what specifically? Scripture says all of God's promises find their yes in Jesus. So we focus on Jesus, and I want to give you the opportunity to receive him to end our service. So Jesus is in this conversation with this guy named Nicodemus. They're talking about these very things. We're talking about being born again. Jesus explains to him that in order to be born again, you just got to wait for the wind to blow. And then he clarifies it and he says, and you look to me. Listen to what he says, John 3, 14 through 15. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the son of man be lifted up that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. And then right after that, it says, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. And so to embrace this promise, to embrace this life, to find true freedom, the freedom that you've been longing for all of your life, you look at Jesus. You just look. You just look. You look at Jesus and you see him hanging on the cross for you. Not as something just that he did, but as something that he did for you. And you see that that was because he loves you and he wants relationship with you. And as you receive that promise, you receive the Holy Spirit, you know God, you begin to be formed by him. You become spiritually alive and you live a life of freedom, a stumbling life of freedom, walking with him. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for this word for us this morning. Thank you that, um, that you are here, that you're present, and that you're accessible through Jesus and by your spirit. And I ask that you would pour out grace. God, for people who, who didn't know you when they walked in the room, would they receive you? And for those of us who did know you when we walked in the room, would we repent? 
of our sin and our selfishness and, and the ways that we continually run to pleasure or run to religion and, and have forgotten about you. Would you bring us all home? God, where true freedom is found in you. In Jesus' name, amen.